certain your age and uh, your body mass index, and you answer a short questionnaire about your lifestyle and your health, and it calculates how long you have left. And not only that, it then provides you with a countdown in days, hours, minutes, and even seconds. And if anyone's wondering just to save the date for your diaries, please, apparently my big day is the 25th of May, 2065. I'm going to be 84, just, you know, one for the diaries, um, apparently. I also came across this quote by Joshua Burns, who said, The trouble with quotes about death is that 99.99% of them are made by people who are living. And his point's ironic, isn't it? We really don't know what we're talking about when it comes to death. By definition, by the fact that we're still here in the land of the living, talking about it. It's the final frontier, the curtain from which anyone who goes behind never comes back. And as believers, sure, we can know what lies beyond it, but no one who hasn't actually done it can know what it's like to go through. And the other thing about it, of course, is that it's inevitable. It's been called the ultimate statistic, hasn't it? One in one die. None of us is off the hook. We're all going to die. And, and anyone you love, if they haven't already died, is going to die. And in all seriousness, therefore, before we plunge into today's passage... I need to acknowledge that this is probably the most delicate, sensitive, painful subject there is. I'm joking about it, as I just have been, as often a defense mechanism because of how awful it is. And almost all of us will have stories of um, you know, heartbreaking bereavements or, or uh, almost dying ourselves, um, other ways in which we've encountered death in our lives. And I, and I want to be sensitive But from this passage we're up to today in John's Gospel, we are now going to let Jesus dissect for us, masterfully, this awful, awful subject we'd much rather not even think about. And he's worth hearing on the subject. We're going to learn some things from Jesus about death in the coming minutes that I guarantee will be a surprise to quite a few of us. One of them was a big surprise to me this week as I studied this. But what he teaches is going to be a great blessing, that I promise. Well, today's passage, as we continue our way through John, is John 11, 17 to 44. You'll find it on page 897 in the Church Bible. So grab a Bible, page 897. We're going to pick up the story from John 11, beginning at verse 17. And I think this passage carries three main insights. We're just going to go through the story, pick them out one by one. So page 897, John 11, beginning at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found, Lazarus, uh, found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, just to catch you up from last week, we know Lazarus is someone who Jesus had a very close personal relationship with. Him. He loved him. They were, they were very close friends. And on its own, verse 17 could make it sound like that's just when Jesus you know, happened to get there. It's just how the buses were or whatever. From last week, we know different. We know that he deliberately delayed. That was one of the great shocks from last week. Jesus deliberately delayed so that his close friend couldn't be healed by him but would actually die. And the reason was that the reason Jesus wanted to wait till Lazarus had died before getting there was that when he when he if he delayed he knew that when he did get there something utterly spectacular would be demonstrated about God's qualities and character and love and power. Something stunning would happen to show off who God really is and what he's like, what he can do. In other words, he delayed for the sake of God's glory. 
And that's what Jesus said in verse 4 last week, in verse 15 last week. He's going to say it again uh, later in this passage. It really is all about God's glory. And we spent a lot of time focusing on that last week. We're not going to dwell on that anymore this week. But that is the bottom line to all of this. Showing God off, demonstrating him. Uh, But the question remains from verse uh, 17. why, Why wait four days? Why not wait until Lazarus had been dead three days or two days? Or one day would have been enough, presumably. Or 20 minutes. Why, why wait four days? In the Jewish culture of the time, the, the common popular belief, semi-superstitious, was that for three days after death, the dead person's soul would hover over their body, wanting to re-enter it. And they believed it wasn't until the fourth day when the dead person's face would start to change color and, and their, their physical body would start to visibly decompose and putrefy, that the soul would finally recognize Death had come and the soul would leave. Uh, Here's what one commentator says. Jesus deliberately withholds his rescue until the enemy he's confronting has assumed a fullness of authority and destructiveness. Literally, I guess, you know, the destructiveness of the facial tissue starting to break down. The greater the challenge, the greater the miracle. And the greater the strengthening of his followers' faith. And above all, the greater the glory accruing to his father through it. So Jesus waits until death is at its very strongest, day four onwards in that culture, before coming to do what he's going to do. Reading on verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And so she has some faith but not full faith. If she was here this morning, Redeemer, sitting there in the back row next to Matt, she'd probably put her hand up, say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I trust Jesus. She believes Jesus has a certain level of power to heal someone, for example, but when push comes to shove, she doesn't trust him ultimately. Not to do anything really big, like resurrect someone. And that will be some of us here this morning. Uh, you know, Jesus is good for a parking spot. I'll go to him for that. Um, good for trying to get over this cold quicker. Um, definitely good for feeling better about life in general. But do I fully trust him with the really big things? Do I, do I leave the really big things in his hands and approach them his way? Or do I just stress about those, not pray about them that much, and frantically set about trying to fix them my way? Anyway, Martha goes on in verse 22. You can, she's torn. She has got some faith, but just not all the way. Uh, But even now I know, Lord, she says, that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She has some faith. If you're wondering, those words there aren't her trusting Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead. We know that because later in the story it's going to become very clear she thinks he can't. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And I've always wondered if he said that with a twinkle in his eye. I'm going to ask Martha when we get to heaven. Because he must have known at this point, he has a different time scale in his mind for when this is going to happen to the time scale she's assuming. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Implication, you know, we were kind of hoping to have him around a little longer before then. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. More on that later. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Not ultimately, not going to stay dead. Do you believe this? She said to him, 
Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. And again, how much she believes that will emerge more later. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, so maybe she bent down, whispered in her ear, the teacher's here, he's calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. Try and picture it, he's on the perimeter of the village but was still in the place where Mary had met him. When the Jews who were with her, where Martha had met him, when the Jews who were with her, Mary in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they hadn't heard Martha's message to her. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, maybe it was they saying it to him and not Mary because she was too convulsed by her sobs to get the words out as she's on her knees. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying. And there's that Martha faith again. Jesus is powerful, but only to a certain point. Now, does anyone notice anything interesting about the exact choice of words that Mary uses in verse 32? Anyone get a slight sense of deja vu when you heard her say those words in verse 32? Ring any bells? Have we seen them before? They are exactly the same words to the syllable that Martha said back in verse 21. And presumably that was something these two sisters had fixated on in their last probably sleepless several days of just grief. This didn't need to happen. They would have sobbed to each other over and over and over. If if Jesus had been here, this didn't need to happen. Which brings us back to the very shortest verse in the whole Bible, verse 35, which is paradoxically one of the most eloquent because it says so very, very, very much. And I guess if I could sum up everything verse 25 points to in a single phrase, I'd say it points to Jesus' humanity. And that's our first point. The humanity of Jesus. And the Greek tense of the word wept in that verse is aorist. All that means is that it, describes a definite, sudden, uh, specific action. Not, not a gradual, ongoing thing, but, but, but a, a, a point in time where suddenly it happened. It effectively communicates that Jesus burst into tears. wonder if you're a crier. Many criers here? Um, yeah, uh, my, my wife's a crier. Went to the cinema with some of you uh, a couple of nights ago, and I, I know some of you are criers. I'm not a crier, never have been. Um, quite the opposite. I've been pretty hard-boiled. I wasn't expecting to be a crier three Sundays ago when straight after church I, had, I drove our family dog of 10 years to the vet and held him in my arms and fed him little treats as the vet gave him a lethal injection. And I surprised myself at that moment and I found myself, like, what's happening to me? I, I burst into tears. And the point here is that Jesus knows what that is like. He knows what it's like to burst into tears of grief. He knows what it's like to be deeply moved, verse 33, and and greatly troubled, verse 33, and deeply moved again, verse 38. And so someone put it like this. 
Jesus is not remote from the sufferings of his fellow humans. The fact that he is one with us in humanity means he is one with us in agony. He is the one with us in our need. He feels our pain. He lives our experience from the inside. Um, our local doctors is the Queen Hill Medical Practice in Selston. It's a good one, um, where we've got some doctors in the church family here. Um, we're not attached to any one particular GP. Uh, we see whoever's available when we go. But two of the doctors in the practice stick out to me. One is a young guy. You walk in, his eyes barely leave the computer screen. He doesn't smile. He doesn't look at you. Um, you describe your symptoms or your kid's symptoms. He, he listens totally expressionless, tells you what's wrong, tells you what you need to do. Um, no smiles, no small talk, and away you go. Next. Another doctor is Dr. Imri, and my family loves Dr. Imri. Dr. Imri, she's from Bulgaria. With her, you walk in, she stops what she's doing. She gives you her full, undivided attention. She's super friendly. She's relaxed and happy about sharing a bit about her personal life. Um, she treats you like a human. She doesn't try and rush you out the door. And when you describe your symptoms or your kid's symptoms and she can see the suffering, she's genuinely really sympathetic. Guess which doctor we prefer as a family? Jesus is the second doctor. To, to Jesus, we're not projects. We're not numbers. He's been in our shoes. He's compassionate. He's sympathetic. He can empathize. And so I wonder what it is you're going through in life at the moment. For some of you, it might be physical pain, even at this very moment. For others, it might just be bone-weary exhaustion. We've got a lot of babies and toddlers in Redeemer, and maybe you're just not getting sleep, and it's coloring the whole of your life, and you're shattered. Uh, for others, it might be frustration. For others, it might be anxiety. Others, it might be just plain sadness, like you're grieving something. The Gospels describe Jesus as experiencing all of those emotions I've just mentioned, and many others besides. And so he knows how you feel. He's not some aloof, distant, cold deity like the gods of other religions who cannot empathize. He knows what you're going through. He felt it himself and he cares and he's with you in it. But even as we mourn, that doesn't mean we mourn without hope. So let me read on from verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, <laughs> which always makes me smile. Dad is putting it politely. Um, there's evidence that Lazarus' family was, was quite wealthy, quite middle class, so she would have put things delicately and, and politely. But by now, day four, the enzymes and the bacteria in Lazarus' body would have been well on the way to breaking it down. By day four, the, the putrefying corpse would have been starting to emit a green substance and giving off a lot of methane and hydrogen sulfide. But, verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out! The man who had died came out. Can you imagine the shock and the, the horror? People must have, maybe some people fainted. His hands and feet bound with linen strips, so he would have been shuffling, maybe hopping, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. 
And here we come to what is, uh, I think, the main point of this account, which is the authority of Christ. We've seen the humanity of Jesus. Mark just gave us a gl- uh, John gave us a glimpse of that, but now he's going to give us a lot more than just a glimpse of the authority of Christ. And we see this in a number of ways. The biggest and most obvious is that loud command of Jesus in verse 43, to the dead, putrefying, inanimate, um, ex-human. Because it's a command that reaches through death and out of this world, tugs Lazarus' soul back into his body, regenerates his body, and then pulls him back both through death, the wrong way this time, death's meant to be a one-way street, and into the land of the living once more. And Jesus does all of that to show he has authority over death. We see, Jesus, we see Jesus' authority here in other ways too. For example, look at the repeated two-word phrase describing Jesus' emotion in verses 33 and 38. Anyone see the one I mean? Just shout it out to reassure me. What, what two-word phrase describing Jesus' emotion is repeated? Deeply moved. And, and deeply moved, I wonder what you assume that means, deeply moved. That basically means really sad right? Um, Except it doesn't. Here was one of the surprises for me this week. Maybe this will be a surprise to you. Deeply moved is one word in the Greek. It's a word that actually describes visceral anger. Jesus is deeply moved with anger. One scholar even goes for rage. And, And someone wrote this. I think this is very powerful. The distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, what Calvin called its violent tyranny. In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against humanity's oppressor. It is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who Jesus came into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb like a champion preparing for conflict. So Jesus doesn't walk to the Lazarus' tomb sort of handing out Kleenex. He walks to Lazarus' tomb like a boxer walking to the ring, like an MMA fighter walking to the cage, specifically like one who knows he's going to win. The, the person walking towards that stinking corpse isn't helpless little Jesus, meek and mild, wringing his hands. Isn't this just sad and nothing else? It's a figure who's absolutely raging, because of an enemy he hates and knows he's going to destroy. And this is a picture of the authority of Christ. I remember once um, in the army we were on exercise in Canada. And it was a live firing exercise at night. And everything proceed- was proceeding fine when I heard over the radio the words you never ever want to hear. Stop, stop, stop. Because stop, stop, stop is the emergency call for everyone just to stop what they're doing. Something's gone wrong. And all the troops began to filter back to their armored vehicles, which were parked up along the edge of the prairie. News began to filter through what had happened. And a soldier's rifle had had a stoppage. In other words, it had jammed. And that's not uncommon, but to clear the stoppage, he'd tried to do an unauthorized drill as a shortcut. He'd put the butt of the weapon on the ground and stamped on the cocking handle. And the weapon went off, and he was shot through the head. And he actually took a while to die. Our medic fought for his life for a while, receiving instructions over the radio from the doctor. Um, Anyways, I, after this, walked down the row of vehicles in the aftermath. All the soldiers were sitting inside the backs of the vehicles. All the vehicles' back doors were open. And I, I noticed that all the insides of the back doors were totally covered with pornography. And again, that's very normal for the army, seeing that often. Um, but at that particular moment, it really jumped out at me, weirdly so, and it felt so, so, so wrong. 
much more wrong even than usual. And then I realized why. It was because death is so evil. It felt so surreal and incongruous to be in the middle of a situation of death, which is something that came into our world because of sin, something that's a curse because of sin, something Jesus came to destroy by paying for his people's sin, while also being surrounded by a celebration of sin. It, just, it was so wrong to, to be celebrating one and suffering the other at the same time. The point here being that death is evil. Hence Jesus burning anger at it. Uh, here's another big way this passage deliberately highlights Jesus' authority. Look at his, his very careful choice of words to Martha back in verse 25. He says, I've just been singing it. He's, he's the great I am. Verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. And in saying I am the resurrection and the life, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God, as much God as God the Father. Um, I am, ego eimi in Greek, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word, wait for it, this may ring a bell, Yahweh. If Jesus was speaking in Hebrew, he'd effectively have said, Yahweh, the resurrection and the life. Yahweh's God's personal name, as revealed to his people all the way back at the beginning of his people in Exodus 3, and then multiple times throughout the book of Isaiah. And this is the fifth of seven famous I am sayings throughout John's gospel. In every single one, Jesus is very unapologetically applying God's personal name to himself. And then finally, pointing to Christ's authority, don't forget Martha's words to him earlier in verse 27. She says, you're the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. And sure, her faith wasn't a full faith yet. She didn't want him opening the tomb, but her words still stand to remind us of the reality that here is a figure of stunning divine authority. And the take-home from this for us is that we can trust him. We can have deep, deep peace. Whatever problems you have in your life, Jesus has authority over them, up to and including the biggest one of all that you'll ever face, death itself. And, and he may not solve these problems as we would always like. He didn't do that for Mary and Martha. He let Lazarus die. But when he doesn't, as was the case here, the, number one, there's always a plan. He always has his reasons. And here it's for God to get more glory, his followers to get more faith. And number two, we know he cares and loves for us. We've just seen the humanity of Jesus. And number three, we know he's in control. We've just seen the authority of Christ. So even if our problems are causing us pain, Simultaneously, no matter how great the pain, we can always also have peace. Which brings us much more briefly to the final point, which is the hope of life. The hope of life. Because look one last time at Jesus' crucial words at the start of verse 25. And look closely, because what he exactly says is easy to miss. We can sort of assume we think we know what he's saying. But if you look carefully at verse 25, it's not that he causes the resurrection. It's not that he proves the resurrection, not that he anticipates the resurrection, not that he promises the resurrection, all of which are true. What he's saying is that he is the resurrection. And, and that's why it's having an intimate relationship with him, being unified with him by faith. That means we'll get to be raised to life when he returns. And in fact, the, the Bible's clear that that eternal life isn't something that starts after death or at death or something. We have it now. So I, I have it now as a believer. Then I die physically. But even as my body rots, I keep experiencing that eternal life spiritually through my soul in heaven. 
consciously having joy and peace, aware of others, um, having rest. Then what happens next, all the time I'm having this eternal life, Jesus returns to earth, he, he renews into the, into the perfect new creation, at which point my body's regenerated like Lazarus's was, um, the atoms are reconstituted and, and my, my body's made whole again, my soul is reunited with it, and then at, at that point, the eternal life that I have even now goes back to being physical, and at that point, it'll last forever, I'll never die again. See, Lazarus, a few years after this, Lazarus died, that's why he's not around today but he was foreshadowing what we're going to have, and when we have it, we're never going to die again. And as believers, the more we get this, we may think we know this, but the deeper we know it, the more we'll find ourselves able to say with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, we mourn, sure, but not as those without hope. And so we can say, even through the tears, you know, I rejoice that my, my baby, my believing child, parent, friend, even though I miss them to the point of heartbreak, now has more rest and peace and joy than I can possibly imagine. They're safe. And before long, I'll get to see them again in the flesh. They have life. And so when our believing loved ones die, and I'll include in that members of families who are too young to believe or, or just don't have the mental capacity to believe, we're the ones that we're weeping for. They're fine. They're more fine than we could possibly dream. Um, I recently read about a pastor called Donald Barnhouse, and he married a lady called Ruth. They had children. Tragically, while the children were still little, Ruth died of cancer. And on the day of her funeral, the, the dad was driving his children to the church when suddenly a large truck whizzed by them at a junction and its shadow went over the car. And he suddenly turned around to the back seat and said to his children, would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow? And they said, the shadow. And he said, that's what happens to us. Apart from Christ, dying is being hit by the truck. For the person in Christ, dying is being run over by the shadow. And as I close, it, it, it all comes down to, well, let me just quote Jesus from a few verses and see if you can spot what it all comes down to. The single biggest, most important point from John in all of this. I'm going to quote a few verses, see if you can spot the theme. Verse 15 from last week. These are all things Jesus says. For your sake, I'm glad this situation has happened so that you may believe. Verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. End of verse 26, do you believe this? Verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. It's hard to miss, isn't it? Eternal life doesn't come to us by doing good things, having good quiet times, being active in church, making big sacrifices, even having loads of Bible knowledge and good theology, even having amazing spiritual experiences. It simply comes down to faith. Faith in Jesus to pay for our sins so we can be forgiven and accepted by God and have eternal life instead of eternal death. And so let me just close with Jesus' question to Martha because it's his question to us this morning. His, his literal words to her. Do you believe? Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus' humanity. Lord, he, he came down and became one of us so that he could validly be our substitute on the cross and so that he could sympathize and empathize and, and not be some aloof, distant, cold deity like the gods of other religions. 
Lord, he knows what each and every one of us is going through this second. He, he knows the worst that we'll ever go through in our lives. He's been through the worst imaginable himself. He suffered hell itself in our place. So help us to take great comfort from that. And Lord, as well as Jesus' humanity, thank you for Christ's authority. He wasn't just human. He was human and divine. He stands over and above anything and everything we will ever face. He's in control. We know he loves us because of his humanity, but we also know he's in control because of his authority. And Lord, when he doesn't answer prayers in the ways we want or solve things how we would like, help us to trust him. He always has a plan. That's what happened here with Lazarus. And so, Father, please grant us that, that gift of faith that we may experience this eternal life. And Lord, if we already have it, would it go deeper in our hearts so that we can have more peace in the face of tragedy, more confidence in the face of death? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.